Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story. It's entitled, Signs of Spring in Sioux City. City crews filled around 46,000 potholes in 2023. It's written by Dolly A. Butts. City crews are seeing an average number of potholes on Sioux City's streets, according to Field Services Manager Patrick Simmons, who described pothole patching this time of year as a very temporary process. Mild, dry weather is allowing crews to hit the streets and fill potholes on Priority 1 and 2 streets. They're also addressing specific potholes reported by citizens. In 2023, Simmons said roughly 46,000 potholes were filled in the city. That's more potholes than the 29,600 that were filled in 2022. Any of those main collector streets like Hamilton Boulevard, Floyd Boulevard, Outer Drive, South Lakeport, they all try to focus on those priority one and two streets to make sure those streets are still navigable for traffic, he said. We kind of operate on a complaint-driven format. Any time that citizens will call in or report through our website, it sends a request right to our shop. We try to address those as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, there's nothing that can be done to prevent potholes from springing up around the city. Potholes just come along with the Midwestern climate. Potholes are caused by the expansion and contraction of the road surface and subsurface, which occurs due to moisture and the changing of the seasons. As long as the weather's dry, that's when we can actually try and make some progress. Any time that we have precipitation of any kind, whether it's snow, rain, or frost even, that kind of gets into the road surface. And then you have to, you have the extreme fluctuation in temperature, so that creates the pothole, Simmons explained. As long as we don't have high moisture contents and extreme temperature swings, we can make some headway. Simmons said pothole depth can vary by location from half an inch to six inches. He said city crews utilize three different types of material to fill potholes. We'll have one crew that goes out and does the prep work, which entails using compressed air. They dislodge any of the loose material that's in the pothole itself. They will harvest whatever debris they get out of that, he said. The secondary crew has the patching material. It's a hot mix, a cold mix, and then a bag that's essentially another type of cold mix. That crew will come in and they'll patch the pothole. The drier the conditions are at the time of the repair, Simmons said, the longer the repair will last. He said limiting traffic on the repair until the patching material has dried is also key. As long as we can get a dry surface and limit traffic on it until it has time to set up, we can make a decent repair, he said. If it's wet and you've got cars driving on it right after we've made that repair, we could go back and fix some of those multiple times a day if we need to. Unfortunately, pothole patching in the Midwest this time of year is a very temporary process. Simons or Simmons encouraged motorists to give crews filling potholes plenty of room or even go around the block when they see the flashing lights of city trucks if they can. The process from start to finish really doesn't take that long, so if we can make accommodation for our workers, it speeds up the process. When they don't have to deal with traffic, it makes their repairs faster, he said. If you have experienced an issue or struck a hole, you can report a pothole by visiting sue-city.org slash i-want-2to slash report slash pothole. 
Next is an article entitled Sheriff's Department to Buy Armored Vehicle. It's written by Caitlin Yamada. The Woodbury County Sheriff's Office is purchasing an armored vehicle after a shooting at a farm near Hornick, Iowa, resulted in the use of multiple armored vehicles from other entities, Woodbury County Sheriff Chad Sheehan started the process of purchasing an armored vehicle for the county. The Woodbury County Board of Supervisors approved funds for the purchase on Tuesday. At Tuesday's meeting, the supervisors discussed funding mechanisms to pay for the $385,000 vehicle. Budget Director Dennis Butler suggested the Sheriff's Office seek out donations and grants to decrease the county's financial obligation. The vehicle has been ordered, and Sheehan said it takes approximately 10 to 12 months for the vehicle to be built. In November, Sheehan told the board the deputies have been requesting an armored vehicle for years, and they have been held at bay. On October the 29th, officers received a 911 call reporting a shooting that occurred on Old Highway 141 near Hornick. When tactical teams attempted to approach the situation, the suspect fired at them. Sheehan said without the support of nearby law enforcement agencies and their willingness to lend their armored vehicles, there would have been multiple law enforcement casualties. After the situation occurred, Sheehan said the department was going to look into what they needed and how to get the county's own armored vehicle. Sheehan said this would likely not be the last time a situation like this occurred. Sheehan said when he approached the board in November proposing the idea, he got a quote from the manufacturer of the vehicles. He said with the delay in the opening of the new county jail, the sheriff's office has room in their current budget to purchase the vehicle. When he reached out to the manufacturer days after receiving the quote, Sheehan said they wanted to increase the quote by around twenty-five dollars to $50,000. Eventually, they agreed to honor the original quote. At that point, I just said, order it now so that we're locked in and it doesn't cost us any more money going forward, he said. A discussion was had on where the funding will come from. Some of the funding will come from capital improvement projects, excuse me, capital improvement funds and unspent American Rescue Plan Act funds totaling $315,398. The board decided to wait until the vehicle is delivered in September to determine how to cover the remaining $69,602. The final article on the front page of the journal today is entitled, Iowa Senate Republicans Pass Religious Freedom Bill. Democrats say measure would give individuals a license to discriminate. This is written by Aaron Murphy and Caleb McCullough of the journal Des Moines Bureau. Whether proposed legislation would strengthen protections for religious expression in Iowa or provide legal cover for discrimination was at the heart of an expansive and passionate debate Tuesday by state lawmakers at the Iowa Capitol. The proposed legislation, Senate File 2095, is called by supporters the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Under it, the government would have to prove there is a compelling state interest in pursuing legal action against individuals who claim their actions were an expression of religious freedom, and then that any legal remedy against them must be narrowly tailored. Supporters say the bill is needed because, in their view, U.S. Supreme Court rulings have eroded religious freedom protections that were passed into federal law in 1993. The federal law applies only to the federal government, but at least two dozen states have passed state-level versions of the legislation. The Iowa Senate debated the proposed legislation for nearly 90 minutes Tuesday before approving it, with all Republicans voting in favor and all Democrats voting against. 
This is a defensive measure, said Senator Jeff Taylor, a Republican from Sioux Center. The courts have eaten away at religious freedom nationally, and that applies to our state as well. This is a defensive mechanism saying we need to prioritize the First Amendment. During debate, Democrats warned that such a law would give individuals legal cover to discriminate against others, especially minority religions and LGBTQ people using religious freedom as a defense. Religious freedom is important. Those of us who are members of minority religious communities are particularly cognizant of that, said Senator Janice Weiner, a Democrat from Iowa City who is Jewish. The rule of law is also important. We cannot create exemptions that encourage people to pick and choose which laws they will follow. Weiner introduced an amendment that would have inserted into the bill protections against discrimination as prescribed in the Iowa Civil Rights Act. That proposed amendment was defeated along party lines. The amendment would clarify that RFRA is intended to protect religious freedom and at the same time avoid RFRA from being used to discriminate or to impose one person's or group's religious beliefs on others and thereby sidestep non-discrimination laws, Weiner said. It would restore the original intent of the RFRA laws, ensuring that religious freedom is used as a shield, not a sword. Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schleswig, who managed the state in the Senate, said the measure is needed because he believes in the original intent of the 1993 federal law, which was passed by a Democrat-majority Congress and signed by Democratic President Bill Clinton. He said the Democratic Party's motivations have changed in the three decades since the law was passed. Schultz also pushed back at Democrats' arguments that the legislation would lead to state-sanctioned discrimination, calling some of the arguments during debate drama soup. He also asserted there has never been a case of a similar religious freedom law being used to target LGBT and whatever else is accepted anymore. It's never been that. It's never been used for that, Schultz said. We're restoring the original intent of the First Amendment as interpreted by the Supreme Court. Versions of Iowa Republicans' Religious Freedom Bill have been introduced in the Senate annually since at least 2018. This is the first time the bill passed out of the chamber. With its passage out of the Senate, SF 2095 is eligible for consideration in the House. Counties and townships would be allowed to devote money to religious organizations for public services under a bill that passed out of the House with bipartisan support. The bill, House File 2264, would allow church-managed organizations to receive public money if it is for a project that benefits the public and does not require any religious or secular services, educational programs, or participation requirements. Representative Ann um, Osmudson, a Republican from Volga, said the bill would allow public support for projects like food pantries and homeless shelters. The bill passed Tuesday near unanimously in the House with a vote of 93 to 2. Democratic Representatives Eleanor Levine of Iowa City and Megan Srinivas of Des Moines voted against the bill. This is a good bill. It's also going to be able to help individual nonprofits, said Representative Akeo Abdul Samad, a Democrat from Des Moines. It's also going to be able to bring cities and nonprofits together to make sure they're serving the people. The bill now heads to the Iowa Senate, where it will need to pass and be signed by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds before becoming law.
That brings us to an article entitled Handcuffed Suspect Escapes from Police. This is written by Dolly Butts of the journal. Authorities are seeking the public's help in locating a suspect who escaped from police custody Monday evening at a Storm Lake hospital. The Storm Lake Police Department said in a Facebook post that Luis Rodriguez Garcia's age 26, had been arrested following an alleged trespassing incident. He was last seen running southbound from Buena Vista Regional Medical Center wearing a black hoodie, gray sweatpants, pink socks, and no shoes. He was last seen handcuffed behind the back, the Post said of Rodriguez Garcia. A subject that had been placed under arrest has managed to escape custody at the hospital. The suspect was last seen running southbound from the hospital premises. We urge everyone to stay vigilant and report any sightings or information regarding this individual, the Post said. Please do not approach the suspect if spotted. Instead, immediately call 911 to report any sightings or information that could aid in the apprehension of this individual. At 6.21 p.m. Monday, Storm Lake officers were called to a residence in the 500 block of Hudson Street for a trespassing incident. When they arrived on the scene, they found Rodriguez Garcia inside the home and took him into custody, according to a statement released by Assistant Police Chief Patrick Diekman. He was arrested on charges of fourth-degree criminal mischief, a serious misdemeanor, interference with official acts, fifth-degree theft, and trespass, second offense, all simple misdemeanors. Rodriguez Garcia was taken to Buena Vista Medical Regional Center's emergency room for a pre-incarceration screening. At 9.15 p.m., as the officer was escorting Rodriguez Garcia back to a patrol vehicle, he allegedly broke free from custody and fled from the officer on foot, the statement said. He was last seen in the 1500 block of Shoreway Road. Police searched the area throughout the evening but were unable to locate Rodriguez, the statement said. Freddy's on track to open in Sioux City. This is written by Mason Doctor. Freddy's Frozen Custard and Steak Burgers is on track to open its first Sioux City location this summer. The Wichita, Kansas-based chain announced last March that they would open a Sunnybrook location. Initially, the company indicated the restaurant would open in the fourth quarter of last year. Construction began at 5842 Sunnybrook Drive, future site of Freddy's, during the winter. The, the building, adjacent to Hobby Lobby, has taken form quickly in recent weeks. Freddy's assistant public relations manager, Kim Hoyne, told the journal the company is targeting an opening date in July. The Freddy's chain, founded in 2002, has more than 400 locations and is best known for its steak burgers, chicken club sandwiches, frozen custard, patty melts, and other classic fried fare like onion rings, cheese curds, and french fries. The nearest existing locations are in Omaha, Council Bluffs, and Sioux Falls. From the Nation and World page, U.S. votes down ceasefire. Most other members of the Security Council supported resolution. This is written by Edith M. Letterer, Wafa Sharafa, and Sami Magdi of the Associated Press, and the dateline is the United Nations. The United States vetoed a widely supported U.N. resolution Tuesday demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war in the embattled Gaza Strip, saying it would interfere with negotiations on a deal to free hostages abducted in Israel. 
The vote in the 15-member Security Council was 13 to 1, with the United Kingdom abstaining, reflecting the strongest support from countries around the globe for ending the war, which started when Hamas militants invaded southern Israel on October the 7th. Since then, more than 29,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israel's military offensive, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, which says the vast majority were women and children. It was the third U.S. veto of a Security Council resolution demanding a ceasefire in Gaza and came a day after the United States circulated a rival resolution that would support a temporary ceasefire linked to the release of all hostages. Virtually every council member, including the United States, expressed concern at the impending catastrophe in Gaza's southern city of Rafah, where some 1.5 million Palestinians have sought refuge if Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu goes ahead with his plan to evacuate civilians and move Israel's military offensive to the area bordering Egypt, where Israel says Hamas fighters are hiding. Before the vote, Algeria's UN ambassador, Amar Bendjama, the Arab representative on the council, said, A vote in favor of this draft resolution is a support to the Palestinians' right to life. Conversely, voting against it implies an endorsement of the brutal violence and collective punishment inflicted against them. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield said the United States understands the desire for urgent action, but believes the resolution would negatively impact sensitive negotiations on a hostage deal and a pause in fighting for at least six weeks. If that happens, we can take the time to build a more enduring peace, she said. The World Food Program said Tuesday it had to pause deliveries of food to isolated northern Gaza because of increasing chaos across the territory, hiking fears of potential starvation. A study by the UN Children's Agency warned that one in six children in the north are acutely malnourished. Entry of aid trucks into the besieged territory declined by more than half in the past two weeks, according to UN figures. Next up is an article entitled, Assange Tries to Avoid Extradition. U.S. authorities want WikiLeaks founder to face trial for spying. It's written by Jill Lawless of the Associated Press, and the dateline is London. Julian Assange's lawyers opened a final U.K. legal challenge Tuesday to stop the WikiLeaks founder from being sent to the United States to face spying charges, arguing that American authorities seek to punish him for exposing serious criminal acts by the U.S. government. Lawyer Edward Fitzgerald said Assange may suffer a flagrant denial of justice if he is sent to the U.S. At a two-day high court hearing, Assange's attorneys asked judges to grant a new appeal, his last legal roll of the dice in Britain. Assange was not in court. Judge Victoria Sharp said he was granted permission to come from Belmarsh Prison for the hearing, but chose not to attend. Fitzgerald said the 52-year-old Australian is was unwell. Stella Assange, his wife, said Julian wanted to attend, but that his health was not in good condition. He was sick over Christmas. He's had a cough since then, she told the Associated Press. She said the WikiLeaks founder is following proceedings through his lawyers. 
Assange's family and supporters say his physical and mental health have suffered during more than a decade of legal battles, including seven years in self-exile in the Ecuadorian embassy in London and the last five years in the high-security prison on the outskirts of the British capital. He was indicted on 17 charges of espionage and one charge of computer misuse over his website's publication of classified U.S. documents almost 15 years ago. American prosecutors say Assange helped U.S. Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning steal diplomatic cables and military files that WikiLeaks later published. To his supporters, Assange is a secrecy-busting journalist who exposed U.S. military wrongdoing in Iraq and Afghanistan. They argue that the prosecution is politically motivated and he won't get a fair trial in the U.S. If the judges rule against Assange, he can ask the European Court of Human Rights to block his extradition, though supporters worry he could be put on a plane to the U.S. before that happens because the British government already signed an extradition order. Assange's lawyers say he could face up to 175 years in prison if convicted, although American authorities have said the sentence is likely to be much shorter. U.S. vows new Russian sanctions over Navalny. Opposition leader's mother asks Putin to turn over son's body. The White House said Tuesday it is preparing additional major sanctions on Russia in response to opposition leader Alexei Navalny's death last week in an Arctic penal colony. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said the sanctions, on the eve of the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, will be a substantial package covering a range of different elements of the Russian defense industrial base and sources of revenue for the Russian economy that power Russia's war machine, that power Russia's aggression, and that power Russia's repression. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said the U.S. has not determined how Navalny died, but insisted the ultimate responsibility lay with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Regardless of the scientific answer, Putin's responsible for it, he told reporters. Navalny's mother appealed Tuesday directly to Putin to intervene and turn her son's body over to her so she can bury him with dignity. Lyudmila Navalny who has been trying to get his body since Saturday, appeared in a video outside the Arctic penal colony where Navalny died Friday. And back here in the U.S., two adults arrested in Kansas City shooting. Police say both hit during shootout after Super Bowl parade. Two men charged with murder in last week's shooting after the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade were strangers who pulled out guns and began firing within seconds of starting an argument, according to court documents released Tuesday. Missouri prosecutors said at a news conference that Lindell Mays of Raytown, Missouri, and Dominic Miller of Kansas City, Missouri, have been charged with second-degree murder and several weapons counts in the shooting that left one person dead and about two dozen others injured. Both men were shot during the melee, according to probable cause affidavits. Both have been hospitalized since, Prosecutor Jean Peters Baker said. The argument began when two groups of people grew agitated over the belief that people in the other group were staring at them, according to affidavits. The video showed Mays was the first to begin shooting despite being surrounded by crowds of people, including children, according to one of the affidavits. A bullet from Miller's gun killed Lisa Lopez Galvin, 
who was in a nearby crowd watching the rally, officials said Tuesday. Some short articles from under the Digest heading. First, Alabama court says frozen embryos are children. Dateline, Montgomery, Alabama. The Alabama Supreme Court ruled Friday that frozen embryos can be considered children under state law. A ruling, critics said, could have sweeping implications for fertility treatments. The decision was issued in a pair of wrongful death cases brought by three couples who had frozen embryos destroyed in an accident at a fertility clinic. Justices, citing anti-abortion language in the Alabama Constitution, ruled that an 1872 state law allowing parents to sue over the death of a minor child applies to all unborn children regardless of their location. The ruling brought a rush of warnings about the potential impact on fertility treatments. This ruling is stating that a fertilized egg, which is a clump of cells, is now a person. It really puts into question the practice of IVF. Barbara Kalura, CEO of Resolve, the National Infertility Association, said Tuesday. The American Society for Reproductive Medicine said at least one Alabama fertility clinic was instructed by their affiliated hospital to pause IVF treatment. And Supreme Court rejects affirmative action case. The Supreme Court on Tuesday left in place the admissions policy at an elite public high school in Virginia that some parents claimed discriminates against highly qualified Asian Americans. The court's order, over the dissent of Justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas, ended a legal challenge to a policy that was overhauled in 2020 to increase diversity without taking race into account. A panel of the Federal Appeals Court in Richmond had earlier upheld the constitutionality of the admissions policy at the Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, a school frequently cited amongst the best in the nation. That brings us to an article entitled Secret Agent for Cuba. Accused spy pleads not guilty. Damage assessment could take years. It's written by Joshua Goodman and Jim Mustian of the Associated Press. Long before career U.S. diplomat Manuel Roca was arrested on charges of being a secret agent of Cuba for decades, there were some red flags. A recent Associated Press investigation, including interviews with former U.S. and Cuban intelligence officials, found that the CIA received a tip about Roca's alleged double life as far back as 2006, that Roca may have been on a short list of suspected spies since 2010 and could have been linked to intelligence from 1987 of a U.S. turncoat known as Fidel Castro's Super Mole. Roca was secretly recorded by an undercover FBI agent praising Fidel Castro as El Comandante and bragging about his work for Cuba's communist government, calling it more than a grand slam against the U.S. enemy. To hide his true allegiances, prosecutors and friends say Roca, in recent years, adopted the fake persona of an avid Donald Trump supporter who talked tough against the island nation. As Roca pleaded not guilty from jail last week to 15 federal counts, FBI and State Department investigators have been working to decipher the case's biggest missing piece, exactly what information the longtime diplomat may have given up to Cuba. It's a confidential damage assessment, complicated by the often murky intelligence world that it's expected to take years. Roca's attorney, along with the FBI and CIA, did not respond to requests for comment. 
Friends and colleagues of Rocha knew him for an, an aristocratic, almost regal bearing that was fitting for an Ivy League-educated career U.S. diplomat who held top posts across Latin America. So former CIA operative Felix Rodriguez was dubious in 2006 when a defected Cuban Army lieutenant colonel showed up at his Miami home and told him Roca was actually a Cuban spy. No one believed him, Rodriguez said, adding he passed the tip along to a similarly skeptical CIA. We all thought it was a smear. That exchange took on new relevance after Roca was arrested in December and charged with serving as a secret agent of Cuba since the 1970s. Here are some key findings from the Associated Press investigation into Roca's alleged betrayal and the missed red flags that may have helped him avoid scrutiny for decades. The Justice Department's case against Roca dates back to 1973, the year he graduated from Yale. The FBI says he traveled to Chile that year and became a great friend of Cuba's intelligence agency, the General Directorate of Intelligence, or DGI. Authorities also are scrutinizing the first of Roca's three marriages that began around that time, according to those who were questioned by the FBI. Roca was born in Colombia at a age and at age 10 moved with his widowed mother and two siblings to New York City. A talented soccer player with a sharp intellect, he won a scholarship for minorities in 1965 to attend the Taft School, an elite boarding school in Connecticut, catapulting him overnight into a refined world of American wealth. But as one of the few minorities at the school, Roca says he suffered discrimination, something that friends now suspect may have fueled a grudge that led him to admire Fidel Castro's revolution. Prosecutors ranked Roca's betrayal among the most brazen in U.S. Foreign Service history, but the 15-count indictment offers few details about what he allegedly did for Cuba. One former colleague, Liliana Ialdi, recalled a 2002 controversy in which Roca, then serving as ambassador to Bolivia, intervened in that country's presidential election to help a Castro protege. Roca warned Bolivians that voting for a narco-trafficker, a not-so-veiled reference to co coca grower-turned-presidential candidate Evo Morales, would lead the U.S. to cut off all foreign assistance. The comments amounted to Roca's biggest known favor for Cuba. Ayaldi, who later served as U.S. ambassador to Paraguay and Brazil, now wonders whether it was an act of self-sabotage done at the direction of a foreign power to further damage the United States' standing in Latin America. Now that I look back, she said, it was all part of a plan. Roca's attorney did not respond to messages seeking comments. Authorities are conducting a damage assessment that's expected to take years, retracing Roca's steps and speaking with former colleagues and officials about their interactions with him. Among those they interviewed is Rodriguez, the former CIA operative who participated in the 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba and the execution of revolutionary Che Guevara. Rodriguez told the AP that he believed at the time he received the tip from the Cuban defector in 2006 that it was an attempt to discredit a fellow anti-communist crusader. I want to look him in the eye and ask him why he did it. He had access to everything, an angry Rodriguez said. 
It wasn't just Rodriguez's tipster, whom he refused to identify to the AP, but says was recently interviewed by the FBI. Officials told the AP that as early as 1987, the CIA was aware Castro had a Super Bowl burrowed deep inside the U.S. government. Some now suspect it could have been Roca, and that since at least 2010, he may have been on a short list given to the FBI of possible Cuban spies high up in the foreign policy circles. The FBI and CIA declined to comment. The State Department said in a statement that it will continue to work with relevant agencies to fully assess the foreign policy and national security implications of those, these charges. This is a monumental screw-up, said Peter Romero, a former Assistant Secretary of State for Latin America who worked with ROCA. All of us are doing a lot of soul-searching and nobody can come up with anything. He did an amazing job covering his tracks. You're listening to the Sioux City Journal on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. There are no opinions or obituaries in today's journal. So I'll read this next article. It's a personal finance article entitled, Making Your Money Last. Here are four longevity questions you should ask a financial advisor. It's written by Kate Ashford of NerdWallet. Only one-third of men correctly estimated how long a 60-year-old man in the U.S. could expect to live, according to a 2022 TIAA Institute survey, and fewer than half of women got it right for a 60-year-old woman. Advisors call this understanding how long you'll live in your retirement years longevity literacy. It's a crucial part of your retirement strategy, and it's important that you and your financial professional are on the same page. You should be talking about things like what your planner is using as your life expectancy, how you'll cover future health care costs, and whether you need to account for any spending relating to aging parents. Getting this right means your money will last for as long as you do. Here are the questions to ask your advisor. Number one, what are you using as my life expectancy? No one can know when they're going to die, but your health and family history can help your planner make a good guess. How long did your parents live or your grandparents? Do you have any health conditions? I started a few years ago asking a lot of health questions of my clients, says Mitchell Krauss, a certified financial planner in Santa Monica, California. They should let their advisor know of any health concerns that might cause their life expectancy to be shorter. Planners often work with software that can model what will happen to your finances if you die at different ages based on the assumptions you're making. You can explore various scenarios together and decide what makes the most sense. If you've got longevity in your family, let's boost it up to age 97 or even 100, says Timothy Knotts, a CFP in Red Bank, New Jersey. We want to make sure we don't have this thing that keeps you up at night, which is, am I going to run out of money? Two, what should I be doing about long-term care? The big wild card in your financial plan is whether and how long you'll need long-term care. There's a reasonable chance you'll need some kind of support, so talk to your planner about the best way to prepare. You may want to plan to purchase long-term care insurance at some point, or a hybrid policy that combines permanent life insurance with a long-term care rider, 
Or it may be better to self-insure and plan to use savings for long-term care needs if insurance is too expensive. It's something that unfortunately many of us aren't good at, the risk and uncertainty thing, said Paul Yakabowski, a senior economist with the TIAA Institute. This is where an advisor could be extremely valuable to help us understand likelihoods and scenarios and the costs attached to them. Three, how should I prepare to pay for health care? You may have seen Fidelity's statistic that 65-year-old couple today may need $315,000 to pay for health care expenses in retirement. It's a daunting figure, but making the right health care decisions once you're eligible for Medicare can help. I think if people have Medicare and a Medicare supplement, I've actually found they have a pretty good chunk of their health care paid for, said Clark Randall, a CFP in Dallas. This is because Medicare Supplement Insurance, otherwise known as Medigap, can pay for most out-of-pocket costs associated with your Medicare plan. As long as you pay the premiums, many of your costs may be covered if you have a big health event. We also build in some percentage for out-of-pocket expenses, Knotts said. And four, should we plan for my parents? If there are older adults in your life who may need your support later, Make sure your advisor knows this and builds it into your retirement plan to the extent that's possible. Do you anticipate bringing them to live with you or potentially moving in with them? Do you expect an inheritance or do you expect to have to help pay their bills? I will ask, do your parents have enough money to support themselves in retirement, says Catherine Velaga, Velaga, a CFP in Winchester, Massachusetts. Clients may be doing everything right, she says, but it doesn't mean their parents have done everything right. Considering these questions may facilitate a conversation with your loved ones about the future, which can be helpful for everyone. If they're young enough, you can also encourage your parents to look into long-term care insurance for themselves. Now here's a nutrition article entitled, Your Diet Can Give Your Brain a Boost. Call it Brain Freeze. These past weeks of painfully cold weather seemed to freeze my mind as well as my feet. I shouldn't have complained. The frigid weather gave us time to get projects done in the house, but it also made me feel a bit grouchy. Once the weather warmed so my nose hairs didn't freeze when I went outside, my husband asked if I'd like to go for a walk. Yes was not my first answer. When we got back from taking the dogs down the road and back, my mood was lifted. And so, it seemed, was my brain fog. Studies show that physical activity is actually a mental health exercise. I read one article that states just 15 minutes of walking, especially in the out-of-doors, can boost mood and reduce feelings of depression. I seem to think more clearly after a brisk walk as well. It makes sense. As my heart pumps oxygen and nutrients to my working muscles, my brain gets the same benefits. Are there foods that might help our brains stay focused? In 2015, scientists reported on a diet that was found to help slow the gradual decline in cognitive function. It was a hybrid of the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet, Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. Cutely named the MIND diet, Mediterranean DASH Diet Intervention for Neurodegenerative Delay. Foods in this eating style are rich in nutrients and other substances believed to help protect the brain from unhealthy conditions called oxidative stress and inflammation. 
researchers from Russ University Medical Center and the Harvard Chan School of Public Health both reported that older people who most closely followed this eating plan for up to 10 years had the slowest rate of cognitive decline. A subsequent randomized control study in 2023 that followed older people for three years on the MIND diet found no significant changes in cognitive tests compared with controls. This has led researchers to surmise that the longer we follow this pattern, the better. Here's a general plan. Daily, at least three servings of a whole grain, one or more servings of vegetables, emphasis on green leafies, and no more than one tablespoon of butter, olive oil, as a main added fat. Weekly, at least five servings of nuts, four servings of beans, two servings of berries, two poultry meals, and one fish meal. No more than five servings of pastries and sweets per week, four servings of beef, pork, or lamb, and one serving of cheese and fried food. Take it easy on alcohol, a moderate intake, no more than one drink a day for women and two drinks a day for men, may help protect against mental decline, but excessive alcohol consumption is linked to early-onset dementia, according to a 2023 research article in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Now I'll read today's humor column. It's entitled, Leave it to Geezer. It's written by Jerry Zazima of the Tribune News Service. The day after I turned 70, I got an email urging me to buy burial insurance. Now more than ever, it's time to make sure your family is protected, it said. You may qualify for amazing rates on burial policies. I was sure I didn't qualify because I am not, at least so far, dead. But I began to wonder if reaching a milestone, which is better than having a kidney stone, makes advertisers think you are not long for this world. Even if you are still alive, you may be considered so decrepit that you will need to spend all the money you plan to leave to your family, which in my case would keep them in the lap of luxury for about a week and a half, on such geezer necessities as hearing aids, walk-in bathtubs, liposuction, hernia mesh implants, and knee or hip replacements. I've gotten email pitches for them, too. When I told this to my mother, Rosina, who will turn 100 in November and is sharper than I am, so are houseplants, but that's another story. She said, even I don't get these emails. They must think I'm dead. Granted, mom already has hearing aids, all the better, or worse, to pick up my stupid jokes. Maybe I should take them out when you're here, she said. Her knees give her a lot of trouble, which means she will be sidelined for the baseball season, but at 99 she's too old to get replacements. I'd bounce back from the surgery, she said, noting that she has recovered from several broken bones in the past decade, but I don't like hospital food, so I'll use my walker and do laps around the house. I may be 70, but I'm not too old for a knee replacement, I said. Do you need one, Mom asked. No, I replied. How about a brain replacement, she inquired. I haven't gotten any offers, I said. Keep checking your email, Mom said. It would be worth the money. My wife, Sue, who is my age, agreed. You could probably use one, she said. Since we are about to begin a bathroom renovation, I asked Sue if she wanted a walk-in bathtub. No, she said. What am I, 90? Sue also said she gets emails about burial insurance and knee replacements. They must think I'm old, said Sue, who's very youthful. I admit that we should consider getting hearing aids because we frequently can't make out what the other one is saying. You don't listen to a word I say, Sue will say. 
I know she says this because every once in a while I'm actually listening. Other times, Sue will start to say something while she is walking away. When I don't respond, she will say that I am not paying attention. If I do respond, she will say that she was talking to herself. When I say something, it's usually not worth listening to. And when we are watching TV, one of us will ask the other to turn up the volume. Alarming fact, more than 48 million Americans hear so poorly that their quality of life significantly suffers as a result, one hearing aid ad claims. I hear what they're saying, but I am going to pass up this tempting offer. In fact, I am going to ignore all the other email pitches I have been getting since I turned 70. Let's print them out, dig a hole in the backyard, and dump them in, I told Sue. Then those annoying companies could pay us for burial insurance. And we'll turn to the sports page now. First, we'll start with men's college basketball. Creighton topples UConn for its first win over a top-ranked team. Stephen Ashworth scored 16 of his 20 points in the first half as Creighton built a double-digit lead and the number 15 Blue Jays knocked off UConn 85-66 Tuesday night for the program's first win over a number one ranked team. Creighton led by 23 points with 10 minutes left but saw its lead cut to 10 before holding the Huskies scoreless on five straight possessions, rebuilding their cushion and prompting students to leave their seats to prepare to storm the court, which they did as soon as the buzzer sounded. UConn had its 14-game win streak end three days after it beat then-number four Marquette by 28 points for one of the most impressive victories of the season, and one day after it was voted as the first unanimous number one this season in the AP poll. Trey Alexander scored 16 points, and Ryan Kalkbrenner added 15 for the Blue Jays, who made 14 of 28 three-pointers in their second-best shooting night from beyond the arc this season. Creighton was just 6 of 26 on threes in its 62-48 loss at UConn last month. UConn's Tristan Newton scored 17 of his 27 points in the second half, including 10 during the 18-5 spurt that helped pull the Huskies within 74-64. The Huskies made a season-low threes on 16 attempts in their most lopsided loss since Houston beat them 84-45 in the American Athletic Conference Tournament on March 15th of 2019. They had come into the game off a Big East record three straight wins by at least 25 points. In other college basketball games, number 5, Tennessee 72, Missouri 67. Dalton Connect scored 15 of his 17 points in the second half, and the Volunteers overcame a slow start to beat the host Tigers. Toby Awaka added 18 points and 10 rebounds for Tennessee, which won its fifth straight game at Mizzou Arena. Sean East II scored 24 points for the Tigers. Number 25, BYU, 78. Number 11, Baylor, 71. Ali Khalifa had 14 points, 7 assists, and 7 rebounds to lead the Cougars over the Bears. BYU earned its third home victory over a top 25 opponent this season. Jalen Bridges led Baylor with 15 points and 8 rebounds. Utah State, 68. Number 19, San Diego State, 63. Darius Brown II scored a season-high 25 points, and the Aggies beat the visiting Aztecs to take sole possession of first place in the conference. Great Ozabor, adding 17 points, 7 assists, and 7 rebounds for Utah State. 
Jaden Ledee scored 23 points for San Diego State. And number 23, Texas Tech, 82, TCU, 81. Pop Isaacs scored 19 points and put his team ahead to stay with a three-point play with 39 seconds remaining as the Red Raiders rallied late to beat the visiting Horned Frogs. Texas Tech trailed 69-59 with 6.55 left in the game. Emmanuel Miller and Avery Anderson III each had 15 points for TCU. In college football, CFP OK's 5-plus-7 model for playoff. Five highest-ranked conference champions, seven at-large teams to play. Ralph D. Russo and Stephen Hawkins are the authors of this article from the Associated Press. The field for the 12-team college football playoff beginning next season will comprise five conference champions and seven at-large selections after the university presidents who oversee the CFP voted unanimously Tuesday to tweak the format. The move to decrease the number of spots reserved for conference champions from 6 to 5 was prompted by realignment and the disassembling of the Pac-12. An expected vote last month was delayed until the Pac-12's, at the Pac-12's request. The original plan for the 12-team format was to have the six highest-ranked conference champions, with the top four receiving first-round buys and six at-large selections, But with one fewer so-called power conference after the Pac-12's demise, the commissioners who managed the CFP recommended the change from the 6-6 format to the 5-7 format. No conference will have automatic access. Those five slots will go to the highest-ranked conference champs as determined by the CFP Selection Committee, ensuring at least one team from outside the Atlantic Coast Conference, Big Ten, Big Twelve, and Southeastern Conference will make the field. The Selection Committee's rankings also will determine the the seven at-large bids. There will be no limit to how many teams can come from the same league. The coming season will be the first with a 12-team playoff after 10 years of it being a four-team event. This is a very logical adjustment for the college football playoff based on the evolution of our conference structures since the board first adopted this new format in September 2022, said Mark Keenum, president of Mississippi State and chairman of the CFP Board of Managers. While the four highest-ranked conference champions get a first-round bye, teams seeded 5th through 12th will open the postseason on the home field of the higher-ranked team, number 5 versus number 12, number 6 versus number 11, number 7 versus number 10, and number 8 versus number 9. The first of those four games will be on December 20th, a Friday night, with the other three first-round contests played the next day. New Year's six bowl games will host the quarterfinals and semifinal playoff games. The first quarterfinal game next season will be New Year's Eve in the Fiesta Bowl, followed on New Year's Day by the Peach Bowl, Rose Bowl, and Sugar Bowl. The Orange Bowl on January 9th and the Cotton Bowl on January 10th will be the semifinal sites. The national championship will remain at a neutral site with next season's title game January 20th in Atlanta. Now here's some Major League Baseball notes. Judge's big toe, more than footnote for Yankees last season. Aaron Judge's big toe is more than a footnote for the New York Yankees. 
Judge missed 42 games after tearing a ligament in his right big toe when he crashed into the right field fence at Dodger Stadium last June 3rd, a big reason the Yankees fell from postseason contention. It's going to be, I think, a constant maintenance, I think, the rest of my career, Judge said Tuesday. Anything with injuries like that, you just got to stay on top of it so it doesn't flare up again. The affable six foot seven, two hundred and eighty two pound slugger returned July twenty eighth and wound up hitting two sixty two with thirty seven homers and seventy five RBIs in one hundred and six games. I keep getting hurt in right field, so I think that's why they moved me to center field, he said, drawing laughs at a news conference. I think it's about playing smarter, understanding the field, understanding the dimensions. In that case, I thought I had one extra step and I didn't in that situation, so that always goes back to me. I got to be a little smarter there. From the Red Sox, Liam Hendricks grew up in Australia watching Boston play a lot. He's happy he'll finally get a chance to pitch for them. Boston finalized a $10 million two-year contract, the 35-year-old right-hander, a deal that includes a mutual option for 2026 and could be worth $30 million over three seasons. From the Cincinnati Reds, Cincinnati infielder Matt McLean is dealing with an oblique injury at the start of camp. An MRI came back clean, but manager David Bell said McLean isn't going to do anything for five days. McLean batted 290 with 16 homers, 50 RBIs, and 14 steals in 89 games in 2023 in his first stint in the majors. From the Tampa Bay Rays, according to an AP source, veteran infielder Ahmed Rosario agreed to a $1.5 million one-year contract with Tampa Bay. The 28-year-old spent last season with Cleveland and the Los Angeles Dodgers batting 263 in 142 games. Infielder Yu Chang signed a minor league contract. From the Cleveland Guardians, Stephen Vogt presided over his first full-squad workout since he was hired as manager of Cleveland in November. The 39-year-old took over for Terry Francona, who stepped down after 11 seasons. It's Vogt's first manager job at any level, and his message to the team early on in spring training is that this is a fresh start for everybody. Washington Nationals, Washington prospect Dylan Cruz hit an opposite field homer on his first swing in his first live batting practice at spring training. The 21-year-old Cruz connected against Cole Henry. Cruz was selected by the Nationals with the number two pick in last year's draft. From the Oakland Athletics, Chris Carey was hired by Oakland as a play-by-play announcer, becoming the fourth generation of his family to work as an MLB broadcaster. He is the son of Chip Carey, the grandson of Skip Carey, and the great-grandson of legendary Harry Carey. NFL News, Patriots Slater announces retirement after 16 seasons. It's written by Kyle Hightower of the Associated Press. For more than a decade, Matthew Slater was universally celebrated as being the emotional centerpiece of the New England Patriots locker room, building a resume as one of the league's most decorated special teams players. After 16 NFL seasons, he says it's time to call it a career. Slater announced his retirement on Tuesday in a letter posted on the team's website and social media accounts, saying he had given all that I possibly can to respect and honor the game. 
Though it is time for my relationship with the game to evolve, the love I have for it will last a lifetime, Slater wrote. I came here as a young man with hopes and dreams. In 2024, I can retire knowing this experience has exceeded any hope or dream I ever had. A fifth-round draft pick out of UCLA by New England in 2008 and son of Hall of Fame offensive tackle Jackie Slater, he was unapologetically open about his Christian faith while growing into the embodiment of Bill Belichick's Patriot Way team-first culture. Along the way, Slater was voted as the special team's captain 13 times while winning three Super Bowl rings, earning 10 Pro Bowl selections and two All-Pro honors. From 2018 to 2022, he didn't miss a game. His total of 264 games with the Patriots are second in team history behind only Tom Brady's 326. What he brings to the team off the field, leadership, work ethic, guidance, motivation, is very unique and extraordinary. The very top, Belichick said in December when asked about Slater's impact on the Patriots. Team owner Robert Kraft said he expects Slater's career to one day earn him a place in the Pro Football Hall of Fame alongside his father. Matthew Slater wasn't just a special teams player for the Patriots. He was a special team player who helped us win three Super Bowls and made a positive impact on the many lives he touched, both on and off the field, Kraft said in a statement. That brings us to the end of today's Sioux City Journal. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. <laughs>